Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Susanna Sawyer about her book titled The Small Matter of Suing Chevron, which is just out in 2022 from Duke University Press, um, which is absolutely fascinating. On the surface, it looks at a complicated legal case. If that wasn't enough, it analyzes these series of cases um, where an Ecuadorian court successfully got a massive nine and a half billion judgment against Chevron, the oil company, um, and delves into these series of cases through a bunch of different lenses and kinds of analysis, um, and really helps us understand these incredibly important legal cases, but through a lot of different perspectives. So I'm definitely not doing the book justice in my description, but thankfully we have Susanna with us today to tell us all about the book. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Miranda. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we're very glad to have you. We were hoping maybe you could start us off by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write the book. Yeah, so I am a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Davis, and um, my research has by and large focused on conflicts over resource extraction. And my first major project, which came out of my dissertation research in the early 1990s, um, looked at conflicts over imminent oil extraction about 500 kilometers south of the area that's the focus of um, the small matter of suing chevron. And my fieldwork happened to coincide at precisely the moment when the prehistory of this lawsuit started, and that was in 1993. And um, through my then work with an indigenous organization that was quite sophisticated in its capacity to really transform the terms of engagement with a different oil company. The people who ended up being the plaintiffs for the lawsuit against Chevron came to the area where I was working at that time in 1993 and um, we we held a bunch of uh, workshops and um, kind of informational sessions to try and help them organize local understandings of the the larger effects of oil contamination. So that was sort of the I was involved in the prehistory of this case, and as it pursued, it had a life in the United States for ten years from 1993 to essentially 2001, 2002. And that was a a period of time when this lawsuit was actually first filed in the United States. It went through a 10-year period of pretrial hearings in the federal court to the Court of Appeals, back to the federal court, back to the Court of Appeals, and was ultimately sent to Ecuador to be heard um, as as a legitimate case. So Jurisdiction was never accepted in the United States during this pretrial period of the prehistory. 
Um, but there was a lot of discovery action that happened, and it was determined that it was indeed a legitimate case. It was worthy of being heard, but the best place to actually hear it was in Ecuador. And so um, at that point, I then uh, followed the case, and I wrote a collection of articles about the case during this period of pretrial hearings and then the early, early years of its litigation in Ecuador. Um, and kind of left it and then didn't go back to it until a little bit before the ruling actually came through and decided to figure out how to frame and think about this book. So mm. Fascinating. Um, Thank you. Um, I think it's it really speaks to kind of the level and levels of analysis you've been able to engage in to kind of understand sort of the depths and sort of timing of when you've been involved in this. Um, I can't imagine it being possible to look at it this way if you only kind of come in at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense, definitely. So yeah. I'd love to um, get into the book, obviously, and get into some of these layers, though we're definitely not going to be able to do it in the same level of detail as the book. So I would definitely point listeners to the book itself for all of the details. Um, but hopefully we can do a bit of a kind of highlights tour of some of the main um, aspects of these cases and of the ways that you analyze them. And so I kind of want to somewhat obviously, I suppose, um, start with the phrase that you deploy throughout the book of crude's valence of truths. Can you tell us what you mean by this phrase and how you use it in the book? Yeah. So it is um, a bit of a fluid an ambivalent phrase in itself. But, you know, because of my connection with understanding the causes and consequences of oil development in this particular region of the world, in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and that research, you know, began in the early 1990s. So it's been, you know, a number of decades. The, this lawsuit because it had a very strong presence in Ecuador since that moment, since 1993. And given my own positionality in my prior work of pretty much working shoulder to shoulder with indigenous organizations and indigenous leaders in um, devising various conceptual and practical strategies for engaging with multinational oil companies, the majority of ways in which th these struggles are understood are, th are through binary lenses of good and evil and right and wrong and the victim and perpetrator and the exploited and ex the exploited and exploiter. And as I came back to looking at this legal case, so I guess I should say up front, the, there was the pretrial hearing for a decade. And then this lawsuit against Chevron for oil contamination in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon had an extensive life that went from 2003 when the lawsuit was first filed and extended until 2018 when the the, the, the final resolutions of the lawsuit and its various derivative litigation processes took place. So it, it's been a number of, year, of years. 
And um, the way in which this lawsuit has been talked about and many lawsuits in general are through these um, a binary lens that in which passions become very high, people take sides, and there is a somewhat predictable narrative of how to understand these. And I wanted to, in coming back to the case, so it was pretty much 2008, nine, and then onward, I started reading the case file for the litigation in Ecuador, which took place from 2003 to 2011, that the, the primary litigation. And the case file is huge. The case file is over 200,000 pages. And when I started reading it more and more, I re- and obviously I was going through different parts of it. I didn't read it chronologically. I didn't read all 200,000 pages of the litigation case file. But in um, sort of episodically delving into it, I recognized that, um, you know, understanding litigations through binary lenses of good and evil, of right and wrong, is important and essential for you know, particular, particular political stances, but it also is very limiting. It didn't, it couldn't possibly capture a huge complexity of what the case file actually was, was, was bringing forth. And so I wanted to try and figure out a different way of trying to grapple with the complexity of this case, and that it's not clearly black and white, none of it is, um, and that I wanted to come be, initiate uh, analysis from that space of trying to determine how it was um, that the litigation was taking place. So, you know, rather than being the arbiter rather than reading the case file and determining, oh, yes, this is actually what happened and this is what was left out and missing and here's, here's, here's the absolute truth. What I came to um, d- sort of realize I wanted to unfold more and more was understanding how truths were made, how legal, how truths around facts truths around arguments, and truths around what ultimately became um, rendered judicial decisions, how those truths were actually produced. And in reading the case file, it became increasingly clear that chemistry was really important to understanding how those truths were being made. And I don't have a background in chemistry, and so... I realized that in order to understand how different arguments were being made and how chemistry was in fact, different understandings of chemistry, understandings of the chemistry of crude oil were was really important. So I had to go and study the chemistry of hydrocarbons and being open to a world of chemistry and understanding the complexities and the paradoxes um, 
uh, within chemistry and the chemistry of, of hydrocarbons and then expanding that out to thinking with, learning from, rather, a number of philosophers of chemistry, I came to understand that one way to interrupt or intervene into this legal dispute without um, prima facie taking sides, without prima, you know, deter, uh, assuming the role of an arbiter, was to um, be inspired by chemistry and think about how chemistry might offer us a grammar for thinking the relation and thinking relationality and give us, give us a language from which to, to think about complexity that doesn't resolve in, in, in reduction. Hmm. So this term, so valence, I mean, we have this more linguistic, colloquial, use of valence that has more of an emotional, perhaps psychological, perhaps intellectual pull and draw, like the valence of something. We think of its emotional force. And in chemistry, valence refers to um, most narrowly the capacity of any atom to bond with another, um, the strength of that capacity and the arrangements that that capacity will enable. And it also points to the multiplicity of ways in which bondings, alliances, composition takes place. And it, at one level of chemistry, has a very fixed um, understanding, so each Adam has a valence that is, that is a precise number. So the valence of carbon, the carbon atom, for example, is four. The valence of hydrogen is one. So in chemistry, you know, and you see this in the periodic table, that um, each ad- atom has a specific valence. But valence is also used in terms of its productive power of entanglement, of bonding, of, 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 of forming alliances and, um, yeah, compositional capacity. So I wanted to th- use it in all those multiplicity of ways <laughs> and to think of it as being, as providing us a language to think about the multiple relationalities that go about in constituting facts and truth with, through, crude oil. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. I think um, I certainly could not have explained that um, clearly, but it was so fascinating to read and to take on something as such a massive case like this, um, which already has a lot of complexity and then go, actually, there's a whole different way of thinking about it and really taking us out of that idea of looking at legal cases of you have to pick a side. And yeah. there is a kind of right and wrong, and that's what we're doing here. Um, and it was really interesting theoretically. It was interesting in a lot of different ways to um, sort of step back from that and very much think about, are there other ways of thinking about this? And then following along on the journey you take us on in the book to see what happens if we sort of um, follow these alternative ways of thinking. Um, so thank you for introducing us to that and to obviously some of the case background. 
um, in order to just kind of complete our foundational part, yeah. um, could you also just briefly, um, obviously you've given us a lot of context of kind of what the case was about, um, but could you p- perhaps highlight for us sort of the three main questions that the case in Ecuador revolved around? Yes. Um, so the lawsuit was first so the lawsuit is so incredibly complicated and it's often you know difficult to sort of figure out how to, where to start and intervene but the lawsuit is a contamination lawsuit and it is about the operations of one oil company Texaco oil company that um, was granted an oil concession in Ecuador between 1964 and 1992. And the lawsuit contends that Texaco systematically deployed or used substandard technology in its oil operations in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon in order to maximize its profits. And these substandard technologies, which end up being very rudimentary Um, practices. The most significant one, there are many, but the most significant one being that when oil is produced, a lot of waste is accompanies it. So both in the exploration process, meaning the original drilling down to um, try and discover so exploratory drilling, trying to discover an oil reserve, and then actually in the production process, if oil is indeed discovered, quote unquote, discovered, um, a lot of a lot of waste is produced from that. And so what Texaco did was it excavated big holes in the ground, big pits that could be the size of a tennis court. They could be the size of an Olympic swimming pool. They could be the size of uh, almost a soccer field in very, very rare occasions. There's probably maybe one or two that were like that. But ex- so Texaco drilled over 300 oil wells. And next to each of these oil wells is between two and five such pits. Some of them can be quite small, like maybe even half the size of a tennis court. Um, and some of them are quite extensive. And in these pits that were just excavated out of the ground, unlined, um, no perimeter around them, they dumped all of the refuse that comes with oil. And that includes, first of all, when th- this might sound a little bit too technical, but it um, crude oil does not reside in the Earth's crust alone. It resides in complex compositions. And the compositions have to do with the multiplicity of hydrocarbon molecules themselves, which are, so crude oil is not one thing. Crude oil is actually a multiplicity of things. And the different hydrocarbons are come in different forms. So from viscous, tar-like to gas-like methane, those are all hydrocarbons. And all of that exists in an oil reserve. And so when oil is drilled, you know, due to the laws of physics, pressure will bring the crude forward or and up into the, you know, to the, to the, to the surface. 
And so with it comes all of its forms of crude oil, comes gas as well, you know, various forms of hydrocarbon, methane gas, and also a liquid, it's a, a fluid that's called formation waters, which is really, really salty um, a water of types. And so you've got these three things that are coming up, as well as all of the, the cuttings, because these are deep wells, they go down at least two, um, they go down at least two miles, um, like mm. uh, 10,000, 12,000 feet. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of this refuse comes to the surface and has to be dealt with it. Some has to go someplace. And it was dumped systematically. Texaco dumped it into these pits. So these pits were just holding receptacles. And the notion of the lawsuit is that um, the claim is that because these pits were not lined, they were open to the environment, the walls, um, sort of the damming walls around them would breach that there was systematic um, contamination of the environment. And so there's seepage, leakage, um, ruptures into the affected water systems and soil systems, and that that in turn affected local populations who were, who were living there, both indigenous peoples, but many, many, many small farmer, non-indigenous peoples as well. So, and because... Texaco and Chevron merged in 2001. By the time the lawsuit got to Ecuador, the company at that point in time actually was called Chevron Texaco, and then it, it changed its name again in 2005 and became Chevron, but it was a, a merged corporation. And so Chevron in merging with Texaco assumed all of its liabilities. And so that's why it became a lawsuit against Chevron despite the fact that Chevron as a, its independent owned company in the 1960s to 1990s actually never worked in, in Ecuador, just mm. Texaco. Thank you for explaining um, the kind of multiple facets that create this very complicated <laughs> um, legal problem, environmental problem, um, and particularly in a lot of senses, a chemistry problem, which I found really interesting um, mm -hmm. because you discuss how a significant portion of the Ecuador um, case was the sort of physical investigations, going to these places, taking samples from the drilling, um, analyzing it back in the lab, figuring out what chemicals were actually there, what kind of impact they could have on human health, on the environment, and that kind of thing. And I was yeah. really struck by the fact that each side of the case had their own team of specialists. Um, they would take their own, they would each take samples from the site. And in some senses, they really agreed with the findings of the opposition in terms of some of the kind of science, but then also disagreed with each other and ended up in court kind of each having a team of scientists saying, well, no, it says this. Well, no, it says that. Um, this is, I think, one of the areas where your investigation into chemistry really helps us understand kind of the legal developments, I suppose, on both sides. So I was wondering if you could help us understand how you know, two teams of scientists taking samples from the exact same place could end up with data that both agrees and disagrees with each other? Yeah. So um, maybe I should just clarify a tiny bit. Um, mm -hmm. So th this 
Well, like you're in the UK and here in the United States, we have a particular form of law, of common law. And, you know, in the majority of the rest of the world or non-former British colony world, um, there are other forms of law that exist. And so in addition to Islamic law, we've got civil law, which of course, right, so that is predominant throughout throughout continental Europe and throughout Latin America and various other parts, right, of, of, of the world. And the particular form that the civil, that civil law procedures took place for this litigation were really unique. They were fairly unique for Ecuador itself, um, but there would, at least in the United States, they would be unheard of. So that the majority of the litigating of this case never, well, it didn't happen for the most part, except for two weeks in the very beginning, um, within a court, within a courtroom. It, it largely took place through, in addition to through legal documents, it took place out in the field, precisely as you said. And the legal teams were um, charged with, and the they were actually, the, the parties were involved in constructing the procedures through which this would take place, along with the court. So there was a period of almost, let's see, about five years, maybe, no, more, from 2004 to 2009. Yeah, so five plus years of what were called um, judicial inspections. And the judicial inspections were of the lawyers from both sides, the um, technical scientific teams from both sides, went to designated locations that had been predetermined of looking at alleged contamination. And at these sites, um, in fact, there's a great documentary called Crude, which gives, if anyone is interested in seeing what this kind of might have looked like, it was a, you know, a, a fairly potentially fairly chaotic process, but also fabulously potentiated. Um, so uh, the legal teams, along with their technical advisors, were taking soil and water samples out of, initially it was going to be 112 sites, and it ended up being reduced to 54 different sites, and it took years to do this. And they, the samples were taken from uh, water samples, from um, areas in the pits, around the pits, upstream, downstream, in terms of thinking about hydrology, I guess, not just upstream, downstream, but just looking at hydrologic patterns, hydraulic patterns, rather. Um, and then the technical and scientific teams sent those samples to be analyzed in different laboratories. Each team then wrote these very extensive reports looking at um, these samples and the, you know, many other aspects as well that I don't quite get into, but looking a lot at the, um, at, at the, at the geology and hydrology. Um, and reports were then submitted to the court and they form part of the 200,000 page um, 
litigation files, case files. And it's not that the legal, excuse me, it's not that the scientific teams agreed on the raw data. They actually didn't talk to each other, the scientific teams. But um, if one looks, so one of the things that I did was trying to, in reading the case files, looking at this raw data, and the raw data is not in and of itself vastly different. There are differences, but there's so much coincidence. And because Chevron took probably five times as many samples that the plaintiffs did, then even despite the variation that might exist within, you know, their 2,000 plus samples, um, there's a huge overlap with what that raw data is and what the raw data from the plaintiffs is. So this was my dilemma, was that clearly these, te- these legal um, arguments are diametrically opposed, where the plaintiffs are making clear claims that there are um, hydrocarbon elements in the soils and water that is clearly detrimental. And Chevron's legal argument was um, there are no hydrocarbon elements that are detrimental to the environment or health found within any one of these substances of the, the, the samples. So, so that's where, for me, the confusion exists. It's not that the scientists themselves were making agreements and disagreements. It's because the scientists didn't talk to each other. Um, it's where, when I was reading the case file, I was like really confused. <laughs> and this is what compelled me to think about, or this is what compelled me to try and understand the chemistry of hydrocarbons. Because it didn't make sense to me. It didn't, you know, you could, so if, if one were to take a lens of saying, oh, well, it's the evil, horrible corporation, and they're just manipulating their data, and they're construing legal arguments that have absolutely no basis, you know, that would be part of that story. Yeah, of the good and, the good and bad, right? The, the exploiter and the exploited. Mm-hmm. And, but... The more I study the the chemistry of hydrocarbons, and it's just um, almost shocking level of of complexity, and the way in which that complexity is understood allowed me to understand that Chevron's argument within a realm of science actually makes sense. And that the plaintiff's argument also within a realm of science also makes sense. And so this was, you know, just my initial, was my initial exposure to trying to, to think through, wow, this is so incredibly complicated that, you know, there were allegations of some um, sample manipulation and data manipulation um, that Chevron was engaged in at the very, very end of the judicial inspections, but not during the first four four years. So, um, so yeah. So thinking about the chemistry of hydrocarbons really helped, and it's partly because the chemistry. I mean, hydrocarbons, as I as I noted earlier, they're not one thing. There are 
thousands of hydrocarbons and they're different. And so they're, they're not all the same thing and they change over time and space so that what begins as a form of a hydrocarbon will shift over time and it'll shift over its, its, its trajectory, uh, spatial trajectory. Um, and because hydrocarbons as, as compounds are so complex, the degree to which so, so various different regulatory science or even industry science has come to understand that complexity in very narrow ways, increasingly in very narrow ways in the United States. And Chevron was pulling its science, obviously, from a whole regulatory process that has taken place in the United States. So would it make sense to go into that? <laughs> well, I think we can go into um, some of it because I think later on I definitely want to ask you about um, sort of how this become goes from being an Ecuadorian case that has a ruling um, and yet ends up being essentially re-argued kind of in America. Um, and I think that that mm -hmm. American regulatory aspect really comes in. Um, but mm -hmm. before we get there, I'd love to um, kind of ask you about another sort mm -hmm. of way of thinking or mental tool that you give us um, that I think will help kind of uh, continue to tease out some of these things. And it's the idea of exposures orbitals that yeah. you help us understand um, how this creates kind of different legal trajectories for each side, sort of different inevitable seeming truths in a way. Um, can you talk us through this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly, so again, it's my trying to um, borrow a grammar from chemistry that helps elucidate the capacity of relationality. So in chemistry, orbitals are not like orbits, as we might think of a planet orbiting the sun. Orbitals are more like realms. They're cloud realms of connective probability. So it, they're not, it's, it's a way, for me it was at least, a way by appropriating this concept of connective probability, of a realm of connective probability, was to think about orbitals not as something, not as a way of thinking of linear connection, or even linear causality, but a way to think about how elements emerge through really complicated matrices of, of, of engagement so that elements are not isolated, they're not dis purely distinct, but they're already involved in these complicated matrices of relationality, of production, of knowledge, of practices, of protocol, of um, technologies. Uh, and you see this with the chemistry, and you see this with another facet of this lawsuit, which had to do with thinking about epidemiology and whether or not, so one argument was whether or not the question was, excuse me, I should have said this earlier, but one of the major questions was whether or not crude is toxic. And that's where 
the opposing sides, legal teams, had very distinct arguments. And Chevron saying essentially, no, yes, we, there is contamination. You can see the crude on the landscape. You can see these open pits. Some of them had been covered over. Some of them had been partially remediated. Some of them were still open at the time of the judicial inspections. Um, and we see that contamination, Chevron said. Um, and yet it's not toxic. It's not going to hurt the environment, and it's not going to hurt human health. And the plaintiff's argument was, well, that's ridiculous. This, this, there's contamination here, and it's, it's deleterious to life form. So that was one argument, was one sphere of debate. Another sphere of debate happened to be around whether or not crude oil, relatedly, but whether or not crude oil causes cancer. And um, the plaintiffs were suggesting that indeed the systematic contamination over 30 plus years of hydrocarbons seeping into water systems and into soil systems had led to excessive rates of cancer in this region. And so there were various epidemiological studies that they um, appealed to. And Chevron in turn analyze those, the plaintiffs of epidemiology, well, the, 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 the studies that the plaintiffs invoked, and, um, and then conducted its own research as well. Um, and so within both of these spheres, you, you see the ways in which different forms of, of creating reality are deeply connected with an just a um, like this mycelial network almost of other forms of knowledge production and and so that in the case of thinking about the chemistry of crude and whether or not um, hydrocarbons are toxic, it really had to do with how you slice and dice this amazing complexity of what hydrocarbons are and whether you can determine um, how you can determine that something is actually not toxic. And the way in a kind of a simplistic way, how that was done by Chevron was to say that in this amazing complexity of thousands of hydrocarbons, there've essentially been 24 that have been studied very, very intensely and whose toxicological capacities have been determined. So a very, very small fraction. And what industry science and in the United States regulatory science has done is that they've taken those 24 molecular structures and used them as a base for determining toxicity. And the, what, it, what happened in that process was that those compounds, those 24 compounds, 21 of which I guess are, are clearly been mostly studied. Um, they all are, um, <laughs> they're all based off of the benzene ring. They're all aromatics. 
And so they have a particular molecular structure. And they're also all within a particular range of molecular structures with a defined number of carbon atoms, which in the within the the range, the scheme of hydrocarbons, where you might have a thousand hydrocarbons that exist in a puddle of crude oil, those hydrocarbons that are of uh, considered quote unquote lighter, meaning that they have fewer carbon molecules in them, they over time will dissipate. They um, will, will shift and change in their reaction to um, oxygen in, 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 in relationship with oxygen. And so they'll dissipate um, and they'll, some of them will change form from being a, a liquid form to being a gaseous form. So that when it came to measuring or assessing the the constituents of crude oil that might have been 10, 20, 30, 40 years old, then these lighter hydrocarbons that were absolutely determined to have been to be detrimental, benzene being the, you know, kind of the a compound par excellence, it will dissipate. Benzene will actually dissipate, could dissipate with depending on the conditions, the the climatic conditions, it will dissipate in, when exposed um, in the environment from hours to weeks to, to months, it will dissipate. And so Chevron could very clearly say that these compounds that we know are toxic to the environment or that are toxic to humans, when we analyze our samples, they're no longer there. They 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 are not there. Not they actually didn't say they're no longer there. They they just blan um, blanketly said, well, we don't find these elements, and so the samples are not toxic. And the plaintiffs engaged in a whole different type of analysis that had to be to do with looking at. Of an umbrella term of total petroleum hydrocarbons that might exist in a matrix. And even though that couldn't necessarily determine toxicity, it could give a sense of the degree and intensity of contamination and pointed to this whole sphere of unknown knowledge around hydrocarbons. And then that also has intersected with other science that of... Um, that's not regulatory science, but science that has dealt much more with looking at the marine biology, the effects to marine biology of oil spills um, from the Exxon Valdez, which was a big oil spill in Alaska in 1989, and then onward. And that, so taking these different dimensions of how to think about hydrocarbons and how to think about the, the science behind bringing meaning to this complexity of hydrocarbons, it, that the legal arguments were immersed in dense orbitals of scientific, of decades long scientific understandings and um, congealing of knowledges that 
were radically different. I mean, these the orbitals of science that Chevron was involved with didn't talk to or acknowledge the existence of the orbitals of science that the plaintiffs were involved in. And quite similar things happened when it came to the epidemiology. It was a little bit different, but in terms of the epidemiology, um, the plaintiffs were leaning on a collection of studies that were largely led by someone named a, a wonderful doctor epidemiologist, Miguel San Sebastian. And um, he had done long-term research in the Ecuadorian Amazon, not connected to the lawsuit at all, um, and then published a number of articles in the early, the late 1990s, early 2000s. And the articles are engaged in thinking about using using the data that he had access to, which was um, admittedly faulty data, but looking at statistics around um, cancer cases that were compiled by the only, at that time, the only medical facility that could diagnose and treat cancer, which was located in Quito, um, uh, at least a day's um, bus ride from this area. Uh, and he was looking at these cancer cases and associating residents of the cancer cases with areas where there's been long-term oil production. And this was Texaco's former concession. And essentially, he was able to map out associations between the two that indeed in areas where Texaco had been operating, there are um, higher cancer rates, of uh, cancer incidents. And Chevron decided that, well, it would um, tear his research apart, but also engage in its own uh, epidemiological study. And so it, it hired um, an epidemiologist who works for one of these consulting firms, epidemiological consulting firms, to conduct their own study. And it didn't look at incidents, it looked at mortality. And essentially, what the, um, the primary, the PI on, on this um, research team, his name is Michael Kelsch. He essentially proposed the absolute opposite by looking at cancer mortality and demonstrating that, in fact, cancer rates in this region of um, Texaco operations were significantly lower than they were in urban areas. So in comparison to Quito, for example. And um, so I did a couple of things with relationship to epidemiology. Um, the first one was that I looked very, very closely at Michael Kelsch's research. And because, as you noted earlier, I have a very rich, deep history of understanding the actual um, technological processes of oil development in the Amazon, plus a, a, a historical um density to understanding how oil development occurred in the region where Texaco operated. 
What I came to understand was that, unfortunately, Michael Kelsch's work veers towards industry science, unfortunately. Industry science is quite partial. And the whole way in which he tried to assess popu- the, the, the effect of oil development on population was, was just wrong. I mean, he totally miscalculated. And partly because what he was trying to do was he associated all drilled wells that Texaco had ever engaged in, and actually that any corporation had engaged in, in this region of the northern Ecuadorian Amazon with population without recognizing that a good portion, I mean, a a portion, I should say maybe a good portion, but a portion of all drilled wells will be dry. A portion of all drilled wells will might might have discovered crude oil, but the logistics for getting it out are not sufficiently and economically viable, or they might discover crude oil, but its particular um, viscosity is not economically, you know, advantageous, so it won't be exploited. So what happened was he associated all drilled wells as being, so for example, a dry well or a well that hadn't been ever developed or a well that hadn't been developed until 20 years later and its effect on population in this exact same way that he would have looked at a well that had been drilled in 1967 and had been producing for 40 years and its effect. And the the merging of these two processes ended up diluting the capacity to recognize any association between oil operations and cancer mortality. So, so that's a whole, like, so there's the, these whole orbitals of, of knowledge production that are going on. Like these connective probabilities of how it is that he's recognizing things and not. And then deeper beyond that, you know, beyond just saying, oh, Chevron manipulated or Chevron relied on rather manipulated science, um, sort of science for hire for the corporation. Beyond saying that, because that's not the end of the story, probably equally impactful was thinking about the science of epidemiology and that the science of epidemiology has within it multiple fissures, but one of the really basic fissures are a a, a division of the science that feels a um, an obligation to be concerned about public health and to think in creative ways in terms of understanding associations, despite also being grounded in a methodology, a a statistical methodology. And then there's a whole different realm of epidemiology that is quite, is much more constrained and is much more concerned with asserting its, its viability as a science through mathematics. And that mathematical precision ends up trumping the capacity of understanding contextual contextual art accuracy and the ways in which those 
those tensions within epidemiology ended up being fodder for a a kind of a cadre of epidemiologists that Chevron hired to tear the work of San Sebastián that the plaintiffs, the Ecuadorian plaintiffs relied on, they tore his research apart based in good part on thinking around statistics, but also based on certain rather um, overly codified criteria that were set as being um, a high mark for understanding causality within epidemiology. Mm. Um, So... No, thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it really kind of speaks to these broader points of um, science might seem like a kind of fixed, firm thing, but actually um, investigation reveals a lot of really interesting complexity. Um, And that's very much the case when we look at kind of the outcome of the case. So Mm. um, obviously, as we've already sort of hinted at, and of course, the case is over, so we don't have to worry about spoiler alerts here. Um, (laughs) But of course, the, the case... Uh, does get a ruling in Ecuador and it seems sort of done but then we strange things happen over in America and we'll get to that in a minute but I was wondering before we go over to the uh, United States interpretation um, can you maybe briefly explain to us kind of what was the ruling in Ecuador and how can we understand kind of its legibility oh sure so the ruling in Ecuador (laughs) determined that Chevron was liable for $9 billion. I mean, it's, um, that, that's a rough number because the original ruling, I think says 8.65 or something like this. And then there was a, I think a 10% or so amount that was added for the legal fees. And so I think it was, it ended up being closer to 9.5. But I use nine just to sort of be a a midpoint between these two. Um, So $9 billion, which even for an oil company like Chevron, so in the United States, Chevron is the second largest private, well, second largest oil company in the United States. Um, And it's recognized as the fourth largest private oil company in the meaning publicly publicly traded meaning not not non-state oil company in the world so nine billion dollars even for them is a lot of money and most importantly chevron and the industry in general were really concerned and have fought really really hard against that ruling primarily because they didn't want or they don't want a precedent set that a corporation could be liable for its oil contamination decades and decades and decades later, because I should just underscore that the practices that Texaco was involved in, in Ecuador and the the technology and that quote unquote substandard technology of all these big, huge earth pits and waste thrown in, in which waste was thrown in, that those practices are not unique. They're not unique within Latin America. They're not unique within the world. So, um, so the industry was really concerned about not wanting to have precedent set at, at this level, at this, uh, to this extent. 
So the majority of that $9 billion is directed toward remediation. Um, so the judge had directed that water and soil contamination be remediated to the largest extent possible to its original condition. So that's, and there's various ways in which that, uh, the amount, which was over $5 billion, I think it was like $5.6 billion. There's various complicated ways in which the um, ruling judge, whose name was Nicolas Zambrano, so there are various ways in which he came to that calculation. Um, and then a portion of it is for the indigenous communities who lost substantial amounts of land and um, cultural practices due to oil development. And then a third dimension of that $9 billion goes to setting up a medical was was so when I say goes to meant that Judge Zambrano dedicated that a portion of it go towards setting up a medical monitoring system and um, health clinic rural health clinics. So it was not money that was to go in anyone's pocket. It was toward remediation and um, um, cultural cultural heritage and, and you know degradation mm. so so yeah. then what how did the case end up being um kind of reopened in the united states and in fact um a very different ruling was handed down um how do we understand that in this context yeah so um Two weeks before the final ruling occurred in Ecuador, this was in, so I think it was February 14th, 2011, that the Ecuadorian judge made his final ruling. Well, two weeks prior, on February 1st, Chevron filed a lawsuit in the United States, in the federal court in the United States, In it was the... the um, Southern District of New York, so it's in Lower Manhattan. And they filed a lawsuit that was essentially a preemptive lawsuit claiming that the process, the legal process in Ecuador was fraudulent. And um, so I should backtrack just a little bit. When the lawsuit was first filed way back in 1993, uh, in the United States, it was actually filed in the very same court that Chevron filed its count, what's called its counter lawsuit in 2011, right before the Ecuadorian ruling. And when that court sent the case to be heard in Ecuador instead of um, the United States, in, you know, from when it so in <laughs> between 1993 and 2002, there was this period of pretrial hearings. Well, in order to dismiss a case for um, that's recognized as being legitimate, an appropriate forum has to be found. So, you, so it couldn't the the case 
had to be placed someplace. And so it was sent to Ecuador, but un- with, with particular understandings and particular legal agreements. And one of the legal agreements was that any, <clears throat> any ruling that might come out of Ecuador could be enforced in the United States. And so, um, as I mentioned, and um, as happened even after the merger of Chevron and Texaco, Chevron has no assets in Ecuador. And so Ecuadorian courts have no jurisdiction over Chevron as, an, as, a, as a legal entity or as a, a capitalized entity. So the decision that would come out of the Ecuadorian courts, if it had been in favor of the plaintiffs, would any any sort of um, recompense would have to be there have to be some sort of procedural process in the Ameri- in the U.S. court. So, um, and it happened to all be located in New York because. Texaco originally had its headquarters right outside Manhattan. So that's why the case had originally been um, filed in in New York. And because that court already had 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 such a long tenure with these pretrial hearings, Chevron filed its counterclaim in New York City as well. So... um, because it was the also excuse me the agreement for any potential um, recompense that might have to have been um, arranged legally arranged um, that agreement came out of that New York court as well. Um, so okay, so they filed their legal case claiming that the entire virtually eight years of litigation in Ecuador had been fraudulent. And they they filed it in a way that ultimately it became what's called a RICO case. I mean, it was probably only a few months after their initial filing, but a RICO case is a racketeering-influenced and corrupt organization case, which were so particular, there was an act passed by Congress, I think. Oh, I can't actually remember the year. That's fine. I want to say 1970, but I'm not sure. Anyway, it was an act passed by Congress to facilitate the capacity of litigation to go after an organization that was committing fraud, as similar to what's happening with the Trump organization actually right now, um, to for for people for litigators to go after not just individuals who might be the person who commit the particular fraudulent act, but rather the organization involved in conspiring uh, a a larger collection, sort of collection of fraudulent capacities. So so that's how it ended up there. And then what exactly was the ruling? How did it kind of, how much did it agree with the Ecuadorian one? (laughs) Yeah, so it completely delegitimized. So so this was a, a legal case that happened in the district court in New York. Um, it was, as I said, filed in 2011. And the judge um, 
Kaplan, Judge Kaplan, ruled on it in 2014. And his ruling asserted that the Ecuadorian judgment was procured through fraud, corruption. Uh, uh, there's a laundry list of, of, of various, yeah, okay, so there's a laundry list of various ills that they were involved in, but corruption is the primary one. Corruption and fraud are the, crim- the primary ones. And that this ru- his ruling in the United States delegitimized the capacity to enforce the Ecuadorian ruling in the United States. Um, it went to the Court of Appeal and was upheld in the Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, so the $9 billion ruling from Ecuador is unenforceable in the United States based off of um, really sophisticated, really, really, really sophisticated um, legalese and lawyering uh, by uh, an army. <laughs> Um, quite a number of like allegedly 2,000 lawyers that Chevron has engaged in the litigating process, building up to the litigation and in the the actual litigation as well. Um, And what's interesting is, I mean, it's really, really complicated how the Kaplan's ruling came about, but I have a whole chapter that really details the ways in which his misunderstanding of judicial process in Ecuador, his misunderstanding of the chemistry of crude, his misunderstanding of the process of oil exploration in Ecuador, um, his misunderstanding of the language of of decision-making, of judicial decisions in Ecuador, all of this misunderstanding, um, which was all primed by by Chevron lawyers. I mean, he didn't just come to this on his own. I mean, he was essentially, you know, what lawyers do is they feed judges the truths, and then the judges come to find the truth. Um his misunderstanding, um, impartial understanding, his misconstruing of 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 what was what was being produced in the courtroom, um, led him to very have a very strong conviction that fraud was indeed at the root of the litigation in Ecuador, mm. um, and that is so far from the truth. I mean, there were. It was not a clean and squeaky litigation. It took place over eight years. It was really, really complicated. Mistakes happened. Um, mistakes happened by both legal teams. Chevron was far from innocent in that respect. Um, and there's been, you know, various investigative reporting that has been talked has talked about a bit of that as well. Um, but the legal decisions. The legal decision, excuse me, that Kaplan rendered to delegitimize the Ecuadorian ruling is um, it's tragically partial. It's very tragically partial. And the ways in which then the court of appeal cannot understand its partiality is is even even more tragic. Mm. And, um, and what's yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No worries. Um, I was just thinking that um, it's particularly fascinating because it sounds like in a lot of senses this is where the story ends 
Um, yet it's not where the story ends. Um, in fact, a case that initially started between a private company and the Ecuadorian state in Ecuador and then goes to America and gets a very different ruling um, that survives the Court of Appeals, then ends up in The Hague. How? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, just to clarify, it's even a little bit more bizarre because it's originally a case by private citizens against a corporation that then um, has a countersuit by Chevron in the United States in which that decision by the ruling of the judge over a private it's a, it's a civil litigation, right, in Ecuador, then transforms into a legal dispute between that corporation and the Republic of Ecuador. Um, and it is, it's really sad and disturbing how that happens. And one of the, the major little pieces is something that I didn't talk about, and that is the third of the three major disputes in the litigation in Ecuador. One had to do with whether or not crude oil is toxic. One had to do with whether or not crude oil causes cancer. And then the third had to do with whether or not contract, legal contract, provides immunity and releases liability of a corporation. And this all, um, this concern reverted back to a remediation contract that Texaco, so before the merger with Chevron, that Texaco engaged in after its operations ended in Ecuador. So oil companies are given concessions and concessions are given time limits. And sometimes those time limits are extended and sometimes they're not. So Texaco had a concession that would lasted from 1964 to 1992. And they applied for extending the concession period and it was denied. So in 1992, as part of um, relinquishing themselves from the, the, the country, like leaving their operations, they had to engage in a um, environmental assessment report. And they did a couple of them, a t couple of environmental assessment reports, and that indicated in 1993, I think they came out, um, that indicated indeed there was oil contamination in this area and they'd have to engage in cleaning it up. So between 1995 and 1998, they um, first drafted in 1995, and then completed in 1998, a whole remediation program, Chevron, excuse me, Texaco did. And this was, you know, part and parcel, the environmental remediation, excuse me, the environmental assessment studies, and then the remediation would have been part and parcel of any oil company who'd been working in a region. But it became more important because by 1995, the lawsuit in 1993 against Texaco had already been filed in New York. So the company was even more intent on trying to figure out ways of reducing its liability or 
um, disavowing any liability. And this, what I call this couplet contract, 1995-1998 couplet contract, um, it, it took on even more weight and more importance as being a legal document that would finalize Texaco's responsibility for its operations beyond any date after it completed that remediation. And so it was trying to use that contract as a way to demonstrate to the court, in this case in New York, but then also in Ecuador, and then also again, what ends up happening in The Hague, it uses this contract to say, uh, 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 we already recognized that we were responsible for contamination and we cleaned it all up. Look, we've got documents that were all signed, of, well, a, a final document that was signed in 1998 that is a release of liability from the state of, from the Republic of Ecuador. And that release indicates that once the remediation had been completed, once the completion had been checked and verified by various state, Ecuadorian state entities, and once what was called the acta final, which meant the sort of overarching umbrella final document was signed, that this Republic of Ecuador would release Texaco from any liability, any legal claim, any responsibility over the consequences of those oil operations. And so this contract, this couplet contract was brought as a, a legal argument by Chevron to, during the litigation in Ecuador to say, hey, 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 no, not responsible. We already did our due diligence. We already cleaned up what we were said. Look, we've got these documents. We have these contracts that, leg that are legally binding. And it's, cl it's clearly indicating that the Republic of Ecuador can no longer call us to account for our operations or its consequences in Ecuador. And in Ecuador during the litigation in Ecuador, those arguments were there and they were recognized as being legitimate, but it was clear to the court that that had nothing to do with the actual litigation at hand because this Republic of Ecuador was not involved in the litigation. The, the litigation was simply between private citizens and a corporation. And those private citizens were not involved in the couplet contract. They weren't involved in the Texaco Republic of Ecuador remediation agreements. They weren't named. They weren't, I mean, in fact, a memorandum of, of understanding clearly indicated that third parties would not be um, bound in any way, shape, or form to the processes that were going to be um, unfolding um, over this remediation contract. Um, so it, it flounders as a legal argument, Chevron's argument in the, excuse me, Chevron's argument around using this couplet contract to foreclose any possible liability doesn't fly in Ecuador, but they bring it to the international court of arbitration. So the permanent court of arbitration, which is located in the Hague. Um, and 
there it takes on a very, very different life. Because what they claim is that not only was the whole litigating of the court case in Ecuador a breach of contract, a bilateral investment treaty breach, um, but the fact that then the Ecuadorian court upheld that initial ruling in 2011 that found Chevron liable for $9 billion, the Ecuadorian court upheld it three times by three higher courts. And that but because the Ecuadorian executive branch, which was the branch that signed the legal agreement, did not intervene in the judiciary branch and foreclose the possibility of the 2003-2011 um, litigation that, that the Republic of Ecuador had breached its treaty. And it's kind of a, 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 a startling argument. But in 1995, when this couplet contract was first initiated, there was no bilateral tr um, treaty between Ecuador and the United States. But a treaty was signed in 1997. And because the overarching umbrella, um, um, what they called the acta final, the overarching umbrella um, verification that remediation had indeed happened and was signed in 1998, that was a year after the bilateral investment treaty. And so it was subsumed within the investment treaty. And despite what so what the what the lawyers for Chevron argued in front of the permanent court of arbitration was that the couplet couplet contract, which was a it is a legally binding agreement, was the exact same thing in form and substance as the litigation in Ecuador. Mm. And because of a very basic legal doctrine called res judicata, meaning that, um, you know, once a dispute is being litigated or settled between parties, that dispute, once it's reached its final um, level after appeal, that dispute can never be litigated again. And so I, I'll try and make this brief, but the contract was between a corporation and the Republic of Ecuador and it was over a, a state of affairs, which was contamination. And the goal was to remediate that contamination. So you have a corporation, a state, um, and a condition and a goal. And Chevron argued that the exact same thing occurred in the litigation in Ecuador, that you had a corporation at this point, it was Chevron, not Texaco, but because they'd merged, it was the same entity. You had a plaintiff, which in the litigation is a group of people, but because during the period of the contract, 
um, okay, wait, I'll keep going and then I'll come back to that. Sorry. Mm -hmm. You have a state of affairs, which is contamination, and you have a, a goal, which is remediation. That those two things are parallel. And the way in which they allowed for the Republic of Ecuador in the um, contract, the settlement contract to be equivalent to, to be isomorphic to the plaintiffs in the legal litigation was to claim that they were both asking for um, making claims on behalf of what were called diffuse rights and that they were both representing the community and that when the state of Ecuador made its legal contract and dissolved any liability that Texaco, further liability that Texaco held, it was making that claim in the name of community, meaning the, the larger community on behalf of everybody. And that that collective of public included the plaintiffs and that those plaintiffs had no right to individually, apart from um, <laughs> what had had no rights to claims beyond what the state had already resolved for them. Now, it's really complicated, and of course, that there are all sorts of you know objections for why in the world that would make sense, and it clearly doesn't make sense under Ecuadorian law, um, and that has to do with a slew of how the civil code was written and the civil code, which dates back to 1861, has to do with how the civil code was written and it has to do with um, very, um, the way in which Chevron's lawyers created a very flattened bifurcation between diffuse rights and individual rights. And because the plaintiffs were not asking for the, the compensation for personal damages or personal property damages, then they got, in, in, in the eyes of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, because of Chevron's lawyering, their rights got subsumed within something called diffuse rights, which were precisely what they also claimed the Republic of Ecuador had been doing with its, uh, with building the settlement agreement in, in the 1995, 1998 couplet contract. Mm. So there was a way in which the permanent court of arbitration was seduced to believe that the whole litigation process in Ecuador in the 2000s um, was uh, not only fraudulent because they bought the arguments from the US court, but also that it had breached bilateral investment treaty by not abiding by a, a settlement agreement hmm. around remediation. Fascinating and very convoluted. There's a whole bunch of sort of contortions going on there. Um, so thank you for taking us through them. 
Um, well, again, just thank you for explaining all of this, for um, introducing us and bringing us into your analysis and your lenses of understanding this complexity. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. And again, for listeners who want to get into all the details um, that we weren't able necessarily to cover here, uh, the book, again, is titled The Small Matter of Suing Chevron. It's out from Duke University Press. Um, Dr. Susanna Sawyer, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.